While the message is entitled, How to Teach What is Good to Others, obviously drawn from, as you can see in the front of your uh, announcements, drawn from Titus chapter 2, Teach What is Good, How to Teach What is Good to Others. I want to, at least for the first 80% of the message or so, take out the how-to and just entitle this, Teach What is Good to Others. Make it an imperative. They were going to talk about some how-to at the end. But my goal is to motivate you to apply what you learned this morning. That is to study the Word of God so that you might then teach others what you learn. So that it would be the most natural thing in the world for you to desire and to delight to take what you have learned in your quiet time with God and teach others. Anne Hazeltine, who would be the future wife of missionary to India, Adoniram Judson, lived a rather privileged life in the United States in Massachusetts. She knew that marrying Judson would mean that she too would need to move to India, where he was called. She struggled with the idea during the fall of 1810. On November 25th of 1810, she seemed to have come to a rest in her decision. She, re- she writes in her diary this, November 25th, 1810. When I get near to God and discern the excellence of the character of the Lord Jesus, and especially his power and willingness to save, I feel desirous that the whole world should become acquainted with the Savior. I am not only willing to spend my days among the heathen and attempt to enlighten and save them, but I find much pleasure in the prospect. Yes, I am quite willing to give up temporal comforts and live a life of hardship and trial if it be the will of God. And if you know anything about her history, in her very short life, I believe she died around 35 or 36 after... uh, I believe it was three or three miscarriages or or deaths of children. She certainly lived a life filled with hardship and trial. But what convinced Anne Hazeltine that she should marry Judson? What was it that convinced her? What was it that convinced her to go to India with him, to accompany him? Was it merely a sense of obligation that she ought to submit to her future husband? Was it merely a sense of duty? This is the Great Commission? No, as she writes, her desires were stirred when she drew near to God and discerned the excellence and the character of the Lord Jesus and his power and willingness to save. It's then that she found pleasure in the prospect of going. As I said, my goal is single. It is to motivate you to know God, to study his word. That his word would be, as we heard read earlier in Psalm 19, a pleasure and a treasure. Sweeter than honey, the honeycomb, and more more desirable than gold. That it would be your pleasure and your treasure, that you would be so filled with joy, and love and delight in any opportunity that you might have to teach another individual. That's my goal. That's one goal. 
my approach to accomplish this goal is twofold. First, I believe I need to convince some of you, not all, but some of you, of your biblical duty, the mandate that God gives to women to teach other women. Uh, This is the discipleship mandate given in the Great Commission of Jesus Christ and and it's specified for women in chapter 2. It's general in in the Great Commission in Matthew 28, but specific in Titus chapter 2. At our ladies' conference 10 years ago in 2013, our topic was becoming a Titus 2 woman. And in my message, I shared the biblical mandate for women to teach the word specifically to other women in the context of discipleship. So what I'm going to do this afternoon first is to review that. To try to convince you that it is indeed God's calling for you as Christian ladies to be able to and to teach what is good to others. And if you're not already doing so, that you would then repent of that sin of omission in your life. Secondly, the approach, the twofold approach, is I do not believe for a moment that merely convincing you that it is your duty to do so is enough. Because beyond that, I'm going to spend time, considerable time, trying to, in a sense, stoke the flame or at least point you in the right direction where that flame might get stoked so that you would find pleasure in the opportunities that you have to teach others what is good. And then at the end, we'll look at some of the how-to, the practical ways to help you carry out the mandate. So turn in your Bibles to Titus chapter 2. As Steve did this morning, I'll give you a little background so to bring you up to chapter 2. You understand the context of the book. We don't want to just dive in to a chapter and not understand the, whole, the context behind it. I'll be very brief, though. A little background. Paul's epistle to Titus, the context. After establishing new churches in Crete, Paul left Titus with the responsibility of overseeing and guiding these new churches and appointing elders. What had happened was false teachers from among the Jewish Christians within the church were beginning to upset the church. And while professing to know God, they actually denied him in the manner in which they lived. It's quite clear from the layout of the book of Titus that this is Paul's concern in the epistle. And basically, his way of approaching this is to tell Titus to encourage the people in the congregation at Crete to be good examples. The mature believers in Crete, be role models, men and women, both men and women. He's concerned that there is no disconnect between what they say they believe and how they live. In contrast, in verses 10 to 16 of chapter 1, he describes, how the, he describes the life of the false teachers. These, those who profess to know God, but in their life and in their deeds, they denied him. They were setting themselves up as leaders of the flock, but they were lazy and they were liars. At the end of chapter 1, Paul describes these false teachers, among other things, as not self-controlled, unloving, detestable, disobedient, and unfit for any good work. Then, beginning in chapter 2, he goes on to contrast the behavior of these false teachers 
with the good works that are expected of God's people. Good works are important, not in our salvation, but because of the gospel, because of the very nature of grace, we have in us a desire to do good. The gospel, by its very nature, produces godliness in the lives of believers. And this is made clear. Titus 2.11, for example, we see how we are only able to reject worldly passions and live rightly by grace. Titus 2.11, for the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation to all people. And people say, amen, we're saved by grace. Bringing salvation to all people, but then what? Training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live opposite of those false teachers, self-controlled, upright, and godly lives. See the same thing in verse 14. As we await for Christ's return, we realize that Christ, it says, gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and, again, save and, what? Purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. So you see the gospel of grace saves and it Sanctifies When it is rightly understood, it is truly received, and it is correctly applied, the result of a Christian's salvation will be ultimately sanctification and an abundant life. So the grace saves the Christian, but also grace sanctifies the Christian, and there's no break in there. There's no two steps. He's, Lord, he's Savior, he's not Lord. There should be no disconnect between right belief and right behavior. And that's what Paul is admonishing uh, Titus here. Teach this, he says. Teach it with authority. Chapter 2 begins. He says, but as for you, Pastor Titus, as for you, teach what accords with sound doctrine. Sound doctrine. The sound doctrine that Paul is particularly concerned with here is regarding godly living in light of the true gospel, in light of faith in the true gospel. So he addresses the behavior of the church, and he groups them into, into the typical household uh, type names, older men, older women, young women, young men, and servants. In verse 2, he begins with the older men, and he says, older men are to be sober-minded, dignified, self-controlled, sound in faith, in love, and steadfastness. These points that the older men are to be examples of were chosen in particular by Paul to contrast the foolish, undignified, indulgent, greedy, lazy, gluttonous, false teachers that had infiltrated the church. So in essence, he's writing this. He's saying something like this. He's saying, in order to counteract their poor example of manhood, Titus, you teach the older men to live this way so that they might show what what true masculine disciples are supposed to look like. Now we come to verse 3, and he's going to address the women, and this is our focus here today. Verses 3 through 5. Older women, likewise, are to be reverent in behavior, not slanderers or slaves to much wine. They are to teach what is good, And so train the young women to love their husbands and children, to be self-controlled, pure, working at home, kind and submissive to their own husbands, that the word of God may not be reviled. 
While there are similarities between what's expected of men and women, old and young, there are also clearly distinctions here. There are some things that are particularly directed to women to teach other women that men just cannot do. So he's calling Titus here as the pastor to instruct the older women in the church to serve as models for the younger women. That is to mentor, to disciple, to model their lives. Uh, Ten years ago in that sermon I called it spiritual mothering. This afternoon we're going to look at this text that's directed to women and seek to apply it to what we learned this morning about how to study the Bible. Now, all of us ought to study the Bible. And we ought to first and foremost study the Bible, as Steve already said, for ourselves, to hear from our Father, to sit at His feet, to learn from Him and to grow closer to Him, to grow in our faith, to be sanctified, to edify our souls. But secondarily, but not less important... Secondarily, we study the Bible so that we can teach others. This is how the faith continues. This is how the faith grows. This is discipleship. This is the Great Commission. In Matthew chapter 28, Jesus gave the mandate to every believer to make disciples. How? By teaching all to obey what he commanded. It's a command to men and women. Make disciples by teaching them. But there are only some aspects of the discipleship of women that can only be modeled by other women. And it is your role, your specific role in the Great Commission, ladies, to... The Great Commission is not gender-specific, right? It's for everyone. But it's your specific role as ladies to make disciples of other women by teaching them all that Christ commanded. Now, this passage in Titus chapter 2 is well known. It's the basis of uh, the names of women's ministries all over the place. They're Titus 2 ministry. But, but rather than ordering or structuring a particular women's ministry within the church, Paul here is simply instructing Titus as the pastor of the church, teach the older women. This is, this is their role. This is, live this out. Live your life out before the younger women in such a manner that that they might model your Christ-likeness. They might learn from what you learned. Now, this is not a command that comes with an opt-out. This is not something that you have to sign up for. This is assumed. There's no exceptions to this program. So, in order to obey this mandate given in Titus 2... It requires for you, godly older women, to open up your heart and your life to teachable younger women who are open to instruction, change, and growth. Now, as we look around today, we see older, younger, everything in between. Some, some of you ladies have been in the faith 20, 30 years And we see younger women, new believers, as young as a couple of years old in Christ. We see women who are married. We see women with children. We see um, some with adult children, some grandmothers, young ladies, teens, children. 
So everyone participates in this in one capacity or another. You're either discipling or you're being discipled, and hopefully both. As women, you have a specific discipleship mandate, a mandate. And what's a mandate? It's an authoritative command. It's a calling, and it is without exception. Let's look at this text more more deeply in order to understand the mandate a bit more. First thing we notice is that the command is sandwiched in between two exhortations in verse 1 and in verse 5. In verse 1, Paul instructs Titus, teach what is in accordance with sound doctrine. In verse 5, we have the purpose statement that's given specifically for the women to teach what is good. It is so that no one will will malign the word of God. So you kind of have this parentheses around this text. It starts out with sound doctrine, and it ends with the word of God. We learn from this that sound doctrine is what dictates this older women, younger women discipling relationship. These women in Crete did not receive from their pulpit a shallow, watered-down doctrine from their pastor. As As Paul says, teach what is in accord with sound doctrine. Sound doctrine is the foundation from which the older women then um, teach younger women. Ladies, you ought never to be afraid of doctrine. Never, never set doctrine aside as something for the men to handle. And I emphasize this because there is a subculture within our communities that wrongfully and I will say sinfully, tell women that the only matters that they should be of concern for them are those that are domestic in nature. They would limit the areas of women teaching other women to merely loving your husband and children, being self-controlled, pure, working at home, kind, and being submissive to your husbands, and nothing else. But sisters, really... It is never God's intention for women or anyone to merely change their conduct without changing their thinking. Before we can act in a Christian manner, we have to think in a Christian manner. And in order to think in a Christian manner, we need our minds renewed. And how do we renew our minds? But by knowing doctrine, knowing scripture, understanding doctrine. How can you teach unless you know? John Piper said, weak theology makes wimpy women. (laughs) Now you might ask the question, aren't we complementarian here? Yes, I think Steve made that point early on. It's very clear. We don't believe that women should be pastors. Women should not be teaching men. If you disagree with me on that, take it up outside. (laughs) But I think most of us are in agreement on that. So you might ask the question, why do I need to learn doctrine? Why do I learn doctrine? Well, if you don't care to understand doctrine, and your gathering together with other ladies is is merely limited to giving tips on child rearing, as important as that is, or cleaning the house, as important as that is. And I know the ladies in our church love to get together. They used to share good recipes together. They had cooking fellowship, and they enjoyed it. But do you really think that's it? If your study is not doctrinal, then by default, it will become focused 
on you. As Steve ended uh, this morning, the Bible is about God. It's not about you. But you need doctrine to know that. It's going to be about you. It's going to be about solving your earthly problems. It's going to be about getting a better night's sleep at night so so your child goes to bed earlier. But, sisters, there's a lot about us that will never fill the void. That that will never fill. Because we need the Lord, right? Think of Mary and Martha, for example. Busy house. Lots of serving going on. Lots of cooking going on. But it was Mary who sat at the feet of Jesus. What is it significant? What's significant about being at the feet of Jesus? is that was the place of a disciple and a rabbi. They sat at the rabbi's feet to learn from that rabbi. She was receiving discipleship, in a sense. She was receiving what her soul craved. Now, a recipe may bless the family for one evening, but what you believe about God, what we call theology, will affect your whole life. If you do not know what we learned this morning, how to study scripture, you can guarantee that you will take scripture out of context and you will make the Bible about you. You need everything that Steve taught here earlier to know how to rightly approach the scripture. Because without a proper hermeneutic, you will apply it wrongly as well. We all love the woman of Proverbs 31, and a lot of times we point to her works, her industry, her passion to serve, you know. But how can she carry it all out? How, at the end, does she carry it all out? Because of her understanding of the sovereignty of God, what does she say? What does it say of her? She laughs at the future. She laughs at the days to come. Why? Because she can live confidently. How can she live so confidently Because of conversations about essential oils? No. Fearful women don't laugh at the future. She can laugh because of certainty. She was certain about her future. Why? Because she had her mind set on things above. How else do you get there than by knowing God and learning of him just as Anne Hazeltine did. How many here have heard of Charles Spurgeon? Raise your hand if you've heard of Charles. You bet, everyone better raise your hand because we had three quotes from him. This <laughs> well, it's not surprising that he, would, that, that, that he would be quoted that he is history's most widely read preacher. It's estimated that he preached to more than 10 million people in his lifetime. More material exists in written form by Spurgeon than any other Christian author. How many have heard of Mary King? If you know Mary King, you can... Not not one. Wow. Okay, you're going to learn about Mary King right now. (laughs) Mary King was a cook. Mary King was a cook at Newmarket School. What's so special about that? Well... In Newmarket School, there was a 15-year-old young man by the name of Charles Spurgeon. And Spurgeon points not to her delicious, healthy meals, but to her doctrine as having the greatest impact on him. Listen to what uh, Spurgeon writes in his autobiography about Mary King. He says, 
She was a good old soul and like something very sweet indeed. Good, strong, Calvinistic doctrine. Many a time we have gone over the covenant of grace together and talked of the personal election of the saints, their union with Christ, their final perseverance, and what vital godliness meant. And I do believe I learned more from her than I should have learned from any six doctors of divinity. Now, she didn't know that she was training the prince of preachers, right? She didn't know that 130 years after his death, we would still be quoting him. She didn't know that. She was just being faithful to what she learned. She knew the scripture, and she was sharing it with this young man in the school. Ladies, how do you know whether in your Sunday school class, there might be a young man in that class called to preach? How do you know that that one life might then affect thousands or even hundreds of thousands of others? And one day that young man might point to you as having influenced him. See, no one heard of Mary King. And no one may hear of you. But think of the impact. Sisters, how would Timothy have learned all that he learned about God's word if it were not for his mother and his grandmother, if they were not thoroughly furnished with knowledge of the scripture, how, how would we know, how would Timothy know what he knew? Do you think that your teaching has to stop merely at human and earthly endeavors? Sisters, you're called to speak truth to one another. And that truth has deep roots and will result in lasting change in one another's lives. Sound doctrine is the foundation of your discipleship relationships. And then look at verse 5 again. This is amazing. The aim of this mandate is that God's word would be honored, not reviled. Look at verse 5. It's at the end. It says, all this about women teaching women. Why? That, in order that, here's the intention, the word of God may not be reviled. This text is saying that there is a direct correlation between the honor that the world would give to the word of God And the virtue that it sees in Christian women's relationships. Think about that for a minute. You mentoring another woman can determine whether someone else will honor or profane the word of God. Think about it this way. Paul was very direct about what was going on in Crete. The worldview in Crete was horrible. The the Cretans were rebellious deceivers. He said they must be silenced. They're ruining whole households for dishonest gain. And we can look at our society today and say, isn't that what we're dealing with as well? But what's the solution that Paul offers to Crete? Is it to protest? Is it to write letters to your governor? See, Susan Hunt observes this. She writes, it's interesting that of all the ways Paul could have told women to combat the decadence of their culture, he told them to invest their energies in training the younger women to live Christianly in their society. There's no higher calling for you than this. I remember uh, when 
probably about 20 years ago. Uh, we were just beginning the church, and so one of the founding members' families um, came up to me and said, Joe, why don't you run for council in your town? You can really make an impact that way. This is the philosophy of some. You know, that, that somehow by being politically connected or by writing letters or, or just doing something in, in the culture, you're, you're, you're giving your best energy to the most important thing. Not so at all. Invest your energies in training women to live Christianly in our society. That's a large mandate. It's an important one, and it has worldwide implications. Our second president, John Adams, said it well. He said, from all that I have read of history and government, of human life and manners, I have drawn this conclusion. He says that the manners of women were the most infallible barometer to ascertain the degree of morality and virtue of the nation. The Jews, the Greeks, the Romans, the Swiss, the Dutch, all lost their public spirit and their republican forms of government Government when they lost the modesty and domestic virtues of their women. Interesting. But in line with what he's saying here, that the word of God would not be reviled. You see how important the mandate is? It is within your power, ladies, to live your lives together as sisters in your local church to be such a light in the dark world that they would not revile the word of God. I hope that you are convinced of the magnitude of this mandate. Now, if you just are convinced of that, if you merely study the Bible because it is your duty to study the Bible, because you know you need your quiet time today, then you're not going to delight in that. If you think that you go to the Word of God merely for head knowledge or to learn rules about the Christian life, you're probably not going to read Scripture with much joy, let alone study Scripture. But if you realize that all doctrine originates from Scripture and Scripture is written so that you can know God, know God, You'll delight in it. All doctrine comes from Scripture. Doctrine is not a bad word. All doctrine comes from Scripture. God created us to know Him, to worship Him. That's doctrine. That's why He gave us His Word, so that He could speak to us. Now, we can know about God from general revelation. We can know about God from creation. That was the beginning of Psalm 19 that we heard read earlier. The heavens declare the glory of God, day to day pours forth speech and reveals knowledge. You can know about God by what you look at, but you can only know him through special revelation. The law of the Lord is perfect. It's right. It's enduring. It's righteous. Why? Because it's all about Jesus. It's all about Jesus. The Old Testament promises made, the New Testament promises kept. We go to Scripture to know God personally through Jesus Christ. Every word of it is inspired by God to reveal His Son. Every word is intended, it's written by God through men, but every word is intended by God so that His people would know Him. 
Scripture is authoritative. God is a God of truth. Scripture can be relied upon. It's clear. Anyone here, if you're outside of Christ, you can pick up the Scripture, and with a sincere heart, you will understand it. It reveals to us the one true God. And the Scripture is necessary for you to know Him. You will not know God apart from the Scripture. That's why, ladies, it's so important that we share, when we share the gospel with others, if you're witnessing, if you have, get them into the Word. Get them to, to get, bring them to the Scriptures. Life comes how? By hearing the Word, right? As we study Scripture, it's like being like Mary. It's sitting at His feet, taking the better part. In the midst of a busy household, choose to sit at the feet of Jesus, to know Him intimately. Scripture, of Scripture, Psalm 19 concludes, it's more valuable than gold and it's sweeter than the honeycomb. That is, the Holy Spirit would use the sweetness of honey and the value of gold to woo us, to entice us, not to the uh, physical objects of honey because it's sweet or gold because it's valuable, but woo us into a deeper relationship with God, where we want to know Jesus more deeply. And then what? Knowing Him deeply increases our desire to glorify Him, our desire to follow Him, our our desire to obey Him as we are transformed into His image because we become what we gaze upon. It's a principle throughout, throughout the Bible. You become what you gaze on. So you say, well, I don't really delight in the Word of God. Sometimes it's a, it's a chore for me to read God's Word. What do, you, what do I do? Well, first, pray. Pray that God would give you a love for His Word. Ask others to pray that you would hunger and thirst for His Word. And then, simply, pick it up and read it. It's honey. The, the, the beauty of, of the Word of God, the beauty of Scripture, is that a little bit of it, creates a desire for more. I think we've all been there, right? You just read one page and all of a sudden it's you know an hour later. You know, it, it doesn't take a lot. Put down TikTok for a minute. <laughs> read just one chapter, one chapter. And I guarantee you every time you every time you deny that thing that distracts you and read just a little bit of God's word, every time you do it, it'll become easier and easier. And don't settle for Christian versions of those things. Sermons, they're great, but they don't replace the word of God. If you really believe 2 Timothy 3:16 and 17 that all scripture is breathed out by God, profitable for teaching, reproof, correction, training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. If you take that to heart, if you believe that, you're going to want it in your lives. You're going to want to meet God in Scripture. You're going to want Him to reprove you. You're going to want to be complete for every good work. If you have a hard time, ask someone to read with you. More than accountability, it actually provides you with incentive to read. You, you may grow into one of these discipling relationships with just another sister who you say, can we read the Bible together on the phone? 
And all of a sudden that develops into a discipling relationship. Coming to hear the word of God preached on Sunday is important. It's good. But when we add to that the study of God's word together in our communities, when we put the two together, it's like a synergistic one-two punch. Two forces working synergistically. When you're studying together with other women as part of a local church that's also hearing the word of God from the pulpit, it is powerful and it's exciting. And what happens is that excitement is then catching. Other people want what you have. They see that excitement and others follow. That's the beauty of theology, the study of God, is that it, it takes your eyes off of the physical and it puts it, it, put, it makes everything about God. Even the, even the physical and mundane is about God. And there's so much freedom in that that it's very attractive. Studying God, theology, will make you excited. The Bible is not dull. Sometimes we convey that, I think, by the way we approach the scripture, as it's something that's dull. And then we teach others, by our lack of enthusiasm and excitement, to not be excited and enthused about God speaking to me. If you need more excitement in your teaching, there are a couple of things I have in your announcements on the back page. If you want to turn there, I'll just go through them very quickly. Just a few things to kind of lead you in the direction. If this message is not stoking you to... Uh, a fire in you to go out and teach others what is good, maybe one of these things will. Uh, there's a wonderful podcast specifically designed for women called Priscilla Talk, um, particularly episode number 10 I found tremendous on delighting in doctrine, how theology supercharges women's lives in ministry. That's uh, available on the Nine Marks website. Also, I put some Bible studies here, women's Bible study series for discipleship in small groups, um, a good portion from Christian Focus, Delighting in the Word, Cruciform Press, uh, Walking with God in the Season of Motherhood, M- Melissa Kruger. Although the title would suggest it might be like more about your physical needs, it's not. It's actually very gospel and Christ-centered, according to what my wife has told me about the study. Uh, some book recommendations that'll help Ignite the Fire, Knowing God, J.I. Packer, Redemption, Accomplished, Denied, and Applied by John Murray, um, The Bruised Read by Richard Sibbs, or if, you, if you're more comfortable reading modern authors, Michael Reeves, Rejoicing in Christ, Delighting in the Trinity, D.A. Carson's The God Who's There, and uh, Amy uh, Gannett, I have not read that last one, but heard good things about it, Fix Your Eyes. Um, Just some recommendations for you. But last, but most, last and most, Scripture. Um, Pastor Steve gave a whole list of, of commentaries that can help you to understand Scripture. Pick a book of the Bible and just start to study it. It's amazing what will come out of it. This... As a pastor, this is what I do, you know, and I I can't tell you the joy that it brings me to be seated with God as I'm learning from him. It's a great, great joy. And and I realize 
I, okay, I'm full-time, I have the time, but even if you can do it in, in bite-size, do it. You, you'll, this will change your life, truly. A sister was telling me recently, or through email, about Journable. Journable is simply a, a book, it's a journal, where you simply write out the whole passage. Um, whatever book you're in, you just write out the whole passage and you ask questions about it. Sometimes writing will help you to memorize Scripture as well. But certainly writing the Scripture helps you to meditate on it as you write. Um, finally, let's consider the how-to. How to, how to teach what is good. What, what does a discipling relationship look like? Well, it's very varied. It, it can be a structured Bible study, or it can be informal. It could be ongoing, something weekly or monthly, or it could be infrequent. It could be close up in person, or it could be remote. It, it may involve formal instruction, or it might simply be a phone call. It might be a small group. It might be one-on-one. It might be getting to lunch, going to lunch together. The form is not what's important. The essence of it, though, is sowing your life into another sister's life over the Word of God. So I ask you, are you doing that in some capacity? If you're not, I would hope the Holy Spirit would ask you the question, why not? What are the excuses for this sin of omission in your life? You may say to yourself, I can't do it. It's too risky. It's difficult. It's uneasy. I'm a, or I'm a, I'm a busy mother and wife at home. I have an unsaved husband, and, and he'll never understand this. Or I work full time. I'm going to school. I have so little free time. Or I'm an introvert. I can't be expected to do this. It's very easy for anyone to quickly disqualify themselves Saying, I don't have the gift of teaching. That's good for you, Pastor, but I don't have that gift. No one ever taught me. How can I teach someone else? I'm too old. I'm too young. I would submit to you that no matter what your responsibilities, and I know we all have many, but whatever they be, whether you be a gifted communicator or not, whether you are married or single or a grandmother or a mother or have no children at all, this is your calling, my sisters. And, and you won't have that joy until you fulfill your calling. Now, if you are a mother with a child, then yes, your primary calling is to model Christ-likeness to your physical children. But I'll also say, that no matter how strong your relationship is with your physical children, that their lives would be far richer by permitting others, other women, to help nurture your children. Mothers, don't be too overly possessive of your children. Let them learn to learn from others. Let them learn while they're young to learn the good qualities of other women in the church. And you mothers as well, while, while your daughter or your children might be your primary responsibility, she's not your only responsibility. You're also called to model Christ-likeness and to learn Christ-likeness from other women in your church community. You're all called 
to be both spiritual mothers and spiritual children. Again, Susan Hunt writes in her book, Spiritual Mothering, if you're a Christian woman seeking to grow in faith and live obediently, then you are qualified for spiritual motherhood. So I ask, who does not, who's disqualified from this definition? Are you a Christian woman seeking to grow in your faith and live obediently? Maybe someone here is not, not a Christian, but I think anyone who's a Christian would say they're seeking to grow in faith and live obediently, right? You qualify for a discipling relationship. And what a joy it is to have this in, as part of your life, a regular part of your life, with the women in your church. How do you begin? First, you seek out someone, in particular a new believer, perhaps. Someone who wishes, who wants to be discipled. You can ask your pastors, who in the church might benefit from my life and my ministry? Give a test to that person. Uh, see if they're genuinely willing to put in the time to be discipled. Something to read and get back to you on. If, they, if you give them something to read and it takes them months and they never get back to you, then that, they didn't really have a desire. You want to invest your time in in younger believers who truly desire to be discipled. Then the, after that, the options are endless, truly endless. Study a book of the Bible that you yourself want to study. A lot of times, people say, well, how do you know you, what you're going to preach next? A lot of times, it's, I want to know this book. I, I really want to learn this book for myself. So that's going to be the next book that I preach uh, in, the, in the sermon, in my sermon series. So pick a book of the Bible that you really want to know better, learn it, and then share that with a sister. Invite women to lunch to read and discuss the Word of God together, again, formally or informally. Learn doctrine so as to equip yourself to serve children in Sunday school, to teach children in Sunday school. No one here is too young or too old. Well, two are, but outside of the two. No one here is too young or too old to teach children the word of God. What an exciting thing it is that you could be used in a life of your brother or sister's son or daughter. You can study the word, of course. You can also use prepared Bible studies to kind of jumpstart a small group. Um, there's nothing wrong with prepared studies. Um, we, the, obviously, the whole goal of this is how to study the Bible. So we're, we, would, we would emphasize that. But sometimes you need a jump start. Good material exists for that. There's, there's nothing wrong with a prepared study uh, of a book that's not scripture, as long as the emphasis of that study is the gospel, is Christ. Um, I mentioned earlier walking with God in the season of motherhood. If you're, if you're a mother here and you want to get together, the book has uh, it's a devotional format, but it has questions. You can do it in a group format with other mothers. Wonderful Christ-centered, gospel-saturated book studies are certainly um, acceptable. If you're leading a small group for women, um, get them involved. Interact. Interact with them. Ask, ask questions. Uh, discuss, like you do in your, in your small groups here. 
You don't, you don't have to preach a sermon. Of course, be prepared, but you don't have to preach a sermon. Rather, see your, your small group as a complement to the sermon. Focus on raising up other women in that group who can teach. Identify giftedness. Ask questions, and by the answers to those questions, you might identify the giftedness of one of your sisters. Don't be afraid to ask others to occasionally lead those studies. Every time you teach in any format, in any setting, you're an example to those who you're teaching. Use the tools. That's why you keep this. Laminate it. (laughs) Use the tools that you've learned about this morning. Teaching may not be your spiritual gift, or it may be your spiritual gift. But you can't can't say, well, my gift is teaching, so I don't need to study. I'll just presume that God is going to make me able to teach. (laughs) Teaching, sisters, is not something that comes naturally. It is something that you need to hone. Hone your skills. Listen to other good Teachers, study to show yourself approved a workman rightly dividing the word of truth. Sometimes it takes time to be a good teacher. Initially, you, you, you're, you lack confidence. It doesn't happen overnight. Persevere in it. But it is, sisters, something that you're called to do in one capacity or another. And may you carry it out joyfully to the glory of God. I do suspect that in our midst here today are many ladies not very different from Anne Hazeltine Judson or Mary King the Cook. Two women among myriads who did not just endure doctrine, but cherished it. And that love for God's word overflowed into the lives of others. Settled for nothing less than this. May you say with the psalmist in Psalm 4-7, you have put more joy in my heart than they have, than they have, meaning the world, that they have when their grain and wine abound. May God grant you more joy in your heart over his presence and his word. May it be your pleasure, may it be your treasure, more than anyone in the world gets from their prosperity and abundance. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we we thank you for your word and your spirit who brings your word to our hearts and who we need to understand your word, Lord. We thank you for encouraging us today to be students of your word. I do pray, Lord, that any uh, kindling that might be in the hearts of any of the ladies today would only be further stoked by other, other sources and other means. Father, that every one who is your daughter here will be able to carry out this beautiful, essential, joyful responsibility to train, to disciple other women. We ask this for your glory's sake and the furtherment of your kingdom, and that your word would not be reviled. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen.